I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, your co-host as always. And I'm Matt Bernico. I'm I'm here on this podcast to sell you uh, not a $300 course on deconstruction, <laughs> but a $500 course on deconstruction. Nice. Where can I get me one of those? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you just go down to your nearest deconstruction store and you'll find it there on the shelf. You know, I did go to grad school, so I paid more than $500 to take probably more than one class on deconstruction. So the joke's on me. <laughs> That's a good point. If you went to grad school, you've done it already, probably. Well, probably not. Honestly, you need to do a deconstruction of a different kind if you went to grad school. But that's another story. <laughs> All right, folks. That's right. We're talking about deconstruction this week. And you know what? I'm here to say it's probably good. It's fine. You should be thinking deeply about all of the weird things in your life because why wouldn't you? I think that's a good a good impulse to follow. Mm-hmm. But uh, not all deconstructionists are probably good. Uh, this week we're going to take a second and and think about the interesting culture behind deconstruction, um, and uh, especially with sort of like the the trend of of grifters. <laughs> that might be prevalent in this particular way of thinking. Yeah, there is a lot of them. There's the guy from Hawk Nelson. There's the guy from I Kiss Dating Goodbye. There's there's guys from all kinds of things that you probably know who are on the grift of deconstruction. And I think we Matt and I have talked about doing this episode a bunch of times and we kept not doing it for all kinds of reasons, maybe some good and some bad. I think it is something to kind of tread lightly around, but also something you can't really avoid. Deconstruction as a term has been memified for better and for worse, perhaps in evangelical evangelical kinds of conversations. And yeah, I don't know, I guess, Matt, would you say, let me ask you this to start this conversation mm-hmm. off. Would you yeah, say that you, that you have deconstructed your faith? Is that language you would use? No, it's not language I would use at all, though. I probably have done that, that kind of thing. I think <laughs> yeah. whatever people mean by that word, I'm pretty sure I have done it. But I feel like I was going through some of that before the wave of deconstruction mm-hmm. happened. Um, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like this is a term that that has only started being used after maybe I've done some of this own this kind of thinking. Yeah. Would, would you say that you have? <laughs> I don't a know. A very honest moment, a raw, some raw audio here. That's Dean, right. what, have you deconstructed your own faith? That's a great question. I don't know. I, I was talking to my wife about it a little bit, and I don't know what I would say. It's like, I guess it's the same thing where you were saying, like, maybe I have 
in so far as I was going through some of the same thought patterns or trying to ask similar questions about my own life in the same way that everybody does when you're growing up and trying to figure out, especially if you have an evangelical moment in your past, trying to figure out what the heck that whole thing did to you and is still doing to you. So in that sense, like, yes, I've spent time thinking very critically about evangelicalism in my life and how it shaped me as a human being and so on. But, uh, yeah, deconstruction wasn't the language that was available at the time. So I guess I just I don't feel like I've deconstructed my faith in maybe just in the in the kind of way that we talk about it today. But maybe I have. I don't really know. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I don't want to be too I don't want to I don't want to be I don't want to become a grifter here myself. Yeah. But I do feel like there was a moment in my undergrad um, where I did kind of come to an understanding that like you know, your your religion is what you make of it, and it can be, you know, as diverse or not as you would like as you want it to be. There's this one moment I remember um I was in like a like a freshman philosophy course and we were we read like uh we read Saint Anselm and talked about the ontological uh argument for God's existence and I was having a really hard time squaring that particular argument with the idea of hell because mm-hmm. God has to be good, right? And anyways, I remember that being like a big moment for me where I was like, oh, well, if I if I agree with Anselm, then I guess that's kind of a problem for evangelicalism. huh? Mm-hmm. And uh, I did. So anyways, all that to say, I remember like going through a lot of this and kind of coming to the realization that you can kind of like pick and choose a lot of different things <laughs> when it comes to <laughs> your own religion and kind of see how they work. And I guess that's deconstructive in a way. But yeah, I would have never called it that. Yeah. Let me ask you this. What's uh, what's one <laughs> what's one like book that in retrospect is cringy to have pushed you along the road to where you are now out of evangelicalism but also like you wouldn't be where you are today without that book yeah such a bummer i hate this um (laughs) james k.a smith who's afraid of postmodernism that's the book (laughs) that's all right mine is um clark pinnock's book a wideness in god's mercy which is also a universalism book Oh, you know, what's that? Uh, shoot. Uh, Brian McLaren had a book about uh, universalism, too. That was a big deal for me. Mm. And I can't remember the name of the book, but I remember reading it and thinking, whoa, what a book. <laughs> <laughs> OK, yeah. so maybe we've done maybe maybe we're up there. We're we're amongst the <laughs> the Abraham Pipers of the world <laughs> deconstructing ourselves and our own our own beliefs. And I again, I, I want to I think you're right to say to tread lightly around this, because I think that is. I mean, I don't know. Um, it's it's not something you should write off. I mean, like people should figure out what they believe. That's just a that's a, a legitimately good thing. And the more you think about it, I don't know, not the better it is, but maybe the more, <laughs> the more anxious about it you are. And I guess uh, and uh, more anal about it. And I guess that's fine, too. Um, but uh, it has become this kind of weird culture industry within evangelicalism and evangelicalism. And as two people who had who do have a podcast who are very invested in learning about evangelicalism and all of the weird ways that it works um thinking about exvangelicalism and the the framework of deconstruction seems like something that we i don't know kind of can't just ignore right like it seems like it's a part of the story um it it is i mean very much a reaction to the uh the the strong conservative evangelicalism that we um that at least like the elder millennials grew up with mm-hmm yeah, that's right. And I think that's also the um, 
I don't know, the the reason for some of the uh, treading lightly bit as well, because I think evangelicalism did and still does damage a lot of folks in really particular and unique ways. And I think at its very best, like the discourse around deconstruction is trying to name that and like process it in ways that are collective, you know, and just being willing to kind of share those experiences and so on. Like, I think at the healthiest, that's what is good. Um, but like you said, Matt, there's this kind of culture industry that has sprung up as well. And I think in some ways, at least with the worst offenders, to me, it almost feels like smuggling in a lot of the really bad structural habits of evangelicalism back in through the back door or something and being like, well, you got out of a certain vocabulary, but, you know, some of the uh, the mechanisms are actually still there in some weird ways. So uh, I think it's it's worth kind of, you know, seeing it as this weird emerging ambiv- ambiguous and ambivalent phenomenon, at least. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, that's exactly exactly the kind of impulse I would that I think I'm I myself am always very nervous about. And I'm sure other people end up finding themselves being nervous about this, too. Like, you know, you're trying so hard to figure out what exactly evangelicalism has like done to you or what kind of like patterns of thought you kind of just end up picking up because, you know, that's that's what that's what you, you were given. Right. And you don't know any better. Um, but it's always really nerve wracking to think that like you might be subconsciously reproducing some of the worst parts of evangelicalism without really knowing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about that a lot in my own life and, uh, it's a troubling thought. So anyways, it, it's worth considering all of this though, to, to think about like, I don't know, um, how, how do you, how do you do deconstruction, uh, in a way that is, is, you know, in a, I don't know, it's beyond all the grifters, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So you know, I thought, before we before oh, we get further, you know, one thing that we should do is uh, maybe explain what we're even talking about, because it occurs to me now, I feel like we're uh, we're entering the conversation in the middle just by virtue of having that kind of experience close by to us. But I would bet there's a handful of listeners who have no idea <laughs> what's happening in this subculture or what uh, this term even is. So, Matt, if you had to explain this to somebody who is uh, a happy Roman Catholic who had no <laughs> baggage with evangelicalism, how would you explain it to them? Yeah, how would I? That's a great question. So I think, OK, maybe we can start here. Um, unfortunately, for all of the uh, the big Derrida fans that listen to this podcast, uh we're not talking about that type of deconstruction, unfortunately, um, though we are kind of in a very, very tangential sort of way. Um, so maybe this is one place to start talking about what deconstruction is in this particular frame of reference. Christian theology. I'm sorry, that's not even right. Evangelical <laughs> theology and like some and lots of like mainline theologians had this like very weird infatuation with postmodernism and like the early aughts. And I mean, after that and before that too, but it's complicated. And I think a lot of that language um, of postmodernism ends up kind of like leeching into the larger Christian culture and into like larger, uh, I don't know, just like Christian vocabulary for Mm -hmm. better and for worse. And I think it's mostly for worse probably. Um, But I think that is where a lot of the phrasing and vocabulary of deconstructing comes from is from postmodern theology i mean derrida specifically jacques mm-hmm. derrida a french theo- uh, a french theologian nope <laughs> a french philosopher who comes up with this with this idea of deconstruction um that is actually very complicated and i mean from derrida the idea of deconstruction is that you're supposed to be like taking apart foundational ideas and um like i mean 
the book that always sticks with me about Derrida is called uh, The Force of Law. And uh, the, the idea is that, like, at a certain point, the, the idea of justice and law, um, two ideas that you think are, you know, they go together really well, actually become really at odds with one another. So there's like a big rabbit hole to get sucked into with Derrida and like French philosophy and you should do it. It's fun. It's great. You know, um, <laughs> um, I'm derailing yeah. you right now because I do, I'm finding myself sucked into it already. And uh, it's just, as you were saying that, I think uh, bringing out Derrida like that, I'm going to, I'm going to do my very best to avoid getting a slick two theory brained here. But I think um, as you were talking, it kind of just reminded me of what we were just saying about not feeling like we're part of the, maybe this wave of deconstruction, but still trying to figure that out. Because one thing I really like about Derrida is uh, he has this kind of famous idea that deconstruction isn't really something that you do. It's just like a thing that happens. Like it happens whether you do it or not. And so, yes, you can take up a kind of intentional relationship to it, I guess. And, you know, Derrida wants you to (laughs) like he's trying to do that. But also he's saying it's just going to occur. And I think that's how I feel. I feel like it just happened to me. (laughs) Like I didn't go looking to do it. Uh, It just sort of like, I don't know, was was part of the course of being a person in the world. Um, So anyway, all that to say, Derrida is very helpful. Derrida's deconstruction is really good. It is really good. You're right. (laughs) It's good. And it does just happen. Sort of something that happens like when you're reading and words. uh, I mean, language is all very complicated. This is kind of where it's all coming from with Derrida, though. He's he's questioning like the big ideas, um, you know, about language, about friendship, about law, about justice, all these kinds of cool things that we think are like obvious on their face. But Derrida shows that actually they're not very obvious. They're they're quite complicated. And uh, to pin them down is actually uh, kind of impossible. Try it. Try as you might. Go for it. But um, and, and there's there's some traces, uh, which is very funny in a Derridean sense of that type of deconstruction in what's happening with um, evangelicalism and mm-hmm. evangelicalism. Um, I mean, I think that uh, when it comes to deconstruction, um, it has to do with like questioning the things that are like givens in in one's own faith. Um, and. I mean, I haven't been like, I'm, I'm not like a, a scholar of this particular type of literature, though it'd be very interesting to get more into it. But I've been reading all these accounts in, over the past weeks and listening to a few podcasts about this, about deconstruction, kind of just listening to the way that people talk about it and like what this might mean to them. And I, I mean, if, I think for most people, this has to do with um, not necessarily like taking apart an idea linguistically or something or, or thinking about the logical under underpinnings of something, but it has more to do with like, what are the big things within uh, one's own expression of religion uh, that you might have doubt in? Hmm. And then like, you know, what does that doubt do? Like what happens if you doubt this thing or questioning this thing? Or what happens if you just don't want this at all? What do you, what happens to you if you shove it out of your life? And like, um, if you are a person who is not religious in, in the slightest, that might seem like, well, no big deal. I mean, you just decide, you know, you don't want things all the time and it's fine. But I guess like in evangelicalism, the the things that you're questioning are like, you know, the most foundational things in your life that like God exists or that, um, I don't know, Jesus resurrected or something like these are like supposed to be foundational things. And, and to suddenly shove them out of your life can leave these huge gaps and chasms. And like, what do you do in their absence? Right. And like deconstruction is kind of about figuring out what to do with those things. Like when you when you don't believe them or. Or when you, you know, want to believe them in a different way or, or whatever. So I think a lot of these conversations end up having to do with with doubt and faith and kind of their particular arrangement around core normative beliefs within Christianity. Um, 
Yeah, so a lot of times people express that in terms of, like, does hell exist? That ends up being a big one for people. It was a big mm-hmm. thing for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. Are you going to go to hell? That's a big deal. <laughs> um, anyways, yeah, I think another place where this kind of comes in, though, um, in a really, I mean, a, a way where, again, you'd want to tread lightly in, like, discussing because of the the profound damage it does to people. But it comes from um, figuring out what to do with, like, purity culture or yeah. even evangelicalism's like inability to deal with the existence of lgbtq people right like these beliefs about like human sexuality are, i think a place where christianity um warps people's brains in particularly troubling ways um and you know to um maybe i don't know maybe you come to a new understanding about yourself and you find that you know you are gay or something or you're trans or whatever like um grappling with that and and also, like, the things that you've been taught and kind of come to, you know, um, believe deeply about purity culture can be, like, a really traumatic situation, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. It's also, evangelicalism is so hard to process because it is such a totalizing idea. Like, um, I don't know, I've said this on the podcast a handful of times, I guess, but for people who don't know, I grew up Roman Catholic. My parents sent me to Catholic school and everything else. And then I had like a long detour through evangelicalism in my adolescence. And uh, the weird thing about that kind of life is like most of my evangelical friends also came from evangelical homes. Right. So like their parents were, you know, true believers and so on. My parents were like pretty average Catholics, which is to say, like, (laughs) not very (laughs) like not worried about it. Uh, You know, we went to mass, but I don't know if we slept in. It was fine. Um, and what that experience gave me, I think is this sort of, uh, like lived experience of being a child and knowing what it's like to not have religion be the totalizing thing in your world. So it's like, I don't know, Pokemon was, I guess, probably the totalizing thing in my world for a while, you know, (laughs) like, like not, not questions of my eternal destiny, even though I went to Catholic school. Um, but when I became an evangelical, it was like that piece, the, the, the Christianity piece sort of got bigger and bigger until it sort of consumed everything else. Right. And, uh, I think it was easier for me to get out because I didn't have that same family formation. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can kind of see like, even with my own kind of experience being a, a sort of truncated one in evangelicalism, Uh, it is so successful at turning you into a particular kind of person because it demands like your full attention and the kind of full policing of your personhood in the world that Mm -hmm. like you, you can't really even (laughs) once you start pulling little threads, whether it's your own sexuality or relating to people of different sexualities or gender identity and, and so on. Uh, once you start pulling those threads, like the whole thing threatens to unravel in this really scary way. And I think uh, that process, you know, it like (laughs) it sends you on a course to be like either I want to unravel it all at once and kind of see what happens or like I'm going to very sort of (laughs) anxiously unravel as much as I can, as slowly as I can and kind of keep discovering what's left to be unraveled, you know. So I think I've been through both of those moments, (laughs) maybe different times in my life. Uh, But, yeah, it's it's uh, it's hard to communicate how totalizing that experience can be. Yeah, you know, I, I you use the phrase communicate, and I think that's a really actually a, an important part of it too. Um, 
is uh, some of the tension and deconstruction comes from the inability to like, you know, like once you kind of start doing that work and kind of processing it all, it does become very difficult to communicate with people who are who, you know, you might have had very close relationships with before, whether it's like a family member or a friend or whatever, you know, like um, there's a there's an idea that really rings true to me from the work of Stuart Hall, who is a a cultural theorist and a communication theorist um, from like the, the sort of British Marxist school. Um, and, uh, he has this particular model of communication, um, that's riffing off of this other, it doesn't matter. It's like a lot of, sorry, a lot of grad school (laughs) bullshit, I guess I'm trying to say. Anyways, part of it though, is that, you know, um, communication, something that, um, something that makes communication difficult is that, uh, when, when the, the people engaged in the act of communication have different, what he calls frameworks of knowledge, I think that ends up being a pretty big deal, especially when it comes to the process of deconstruction, yeah. Uh, or then like, you know, the the working backwards of like maintaining a relationship with somebody who's not in the same spot as you. Um, I rem- I have this like very, um, I don't know, this pretty vivid uh, memory of being like a teen, uh, not a teen, but like being home from college and like talking to my mom about religion or whatever. And I tell her what I was, whatever I was learning in like, you know, a religion class or like I took a class in New Testament or something. I was really, really excited about it. And she was like, well, do you think that like do you still have a personal relationship with Jesus? And I was like, honestly, that's not even a word that I, it doesn't even make sense to me. Like that as a concept, isn't something that even I think like registers with me. I don't know what it really would even mean to do that. And like that made her obviously upset. Cause like, <laughs> that's not what you, that's not what your mom, just say, just say yes. Uh, it's not lying necessarily <laughs> if it's true. Um, but like, anyways, what I'm trying to say is that framework of knowledge is no longer like there on my end and it was mm-hmm. there on her end. Right. So we're, we're kind of talking past one another, but that's because like, you know, I started doing that work of like processing, like what I thought was true about the world or what was true about religion or, or how I wanted to engage with it. So that like drastically changed the way I could, I was capable of talking, you know, it, it sort of mm-hmm. limited uh, conversation in some ways. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that's a great way to get things on the table. Maybe that's one way too of um just articulating what at least I think is uh kind of I don't want to even want to say like the good version of uh, deconstruction or the healthy version or whatever. I think my own process doesn't feel uh, very healthy when I just look back. I agree. <laughs> in yes. Retrospect. But nevertheless, uh the I guess it's the way of articulating the deconstruction that happens to you at least that like you don't have to go looking for it. It will just sort of occur the more you kind of attend to all the weird stuff that's going on in your life and the contradictions that you encounter uh, in the world. Um, but maybe, Matt, we can pivot to, to differentiate that a little bit from uh, what's going on with um, some of the kind of grifting folks in the the deconstruction culture industry. Yeah, well, I want to be a little bit <laughs> I want to. OK, the theme of this episode is treading lightly when we're talking about other people's spirituality, because like we don't know what's going on for them, I yeah, guess. Totally. But uh, I did. I was I was listening. I was doing as much research you could on this kind of topic and what research looks like for this particular niche of the world is just like listening to people's weird podcasts, which is fine. I'm here for it, I guess. <laughs> um, So I was listening to. uh man, I can't remember which one it was now. So one of these like sort of evangelical podcasts and, um, and uh, I was kind of interested in it because John Steingard, who is the lead singer from Hawk Nelson was on it. Um, <laughs> and man, uh, let's see. Hawk Nelson is a pop punk band from the, I don't know, the two thousands, the early two thousands. I saw them at Cornerstone a handful of times and I didn't particularly like them, but 
this is interesting, I guess. Like, what's this dude up to these days in 2021? <laughs> um, and uh, so John Steingard, he's, again, like I said, the lead singer of Hawk Nelson. And uh, he was on this podcast because recently, I didn't even know about it, um, but he went through, like, a strangely public process of, like, deconstruction. Uh, that's the word that he used for it specifically. So there we go. Uh, it was all kind of just, like, stemming from his doubts. Um, and he, man, he he kind of said a lot of interesting things about it, though. He said that uh, uh, at the beginning of COVID, he started feeling this way um, because... Hmm. Uh, COVID gave him a moment to kind of like slow down and actually think about his life, which is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I imagine that's probably the story for a lot of people. Um, actually, you know, you like can't go to church, you kind of cut off from your communities, and all of a sudden you're having some big existential <laughs> um, <laughs> conversation with yourself. Anyways, so he was talking about his own his own sort of process of deconstruction, and this is what he said. I'm not saying, sorry, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that John Steingart is like a grifter or something. He's just a guy that's talking about yeah, publicly. Yeah. Um, but it kind of gets us into the the culture of celebrity deconstruction or something. And that, to me, is a fascinating thing. Anyways, so on deconstruction, he says this. If God is real, then he set up reality in a way that allows for that uncertainty. If he's real and he created us, he made us, uh, he made the universe, and he left the possibility of his lack of existence open. He left that open. And to me, the idea of a loving God and a loving father who leaves that possibility open yet condemns people to hell if they don't figure it out right right away I just really struggle with that because it doesn't feel like a loving thing for a father to do. Okay. I'm reading this just to give some like flavor text of like what these people are going through kind of in public. And then I think it's just like really fascinating. It's like such a wild thing because like, um, man, I am glad that nobody gave me a podcast when I was like 19 years old. And I was just like thinking <laughs> yeah. about Anselm and the ontological argument or something that would have been bad. Um, and, uh, I gotta say, I I don't feel I don't feel sorry for him. I mean, like, uh, there's no pity. It's just like, what a weird thing to like have to kind of process this sort of thing out in the open. Um, I don't think that's particularly healthy, but who am I to judge? I guess. Um, but anyways, I think that this is a really interesting. First of all, it's just interesting to hear the way people talk about it. But it's also like illustrative of the ways that uh, Christian celebrities or Christian pseudo celebrities. I don't know how much of Hawk Nelson <laughs> qualifies you to be a celebrity, <laughs> but it's like really interesting to see that, like, you know, uh, that I think there's this feeling that maybe since these people had some type of status in, in an evangelical world, they kind of have to explain themselves now or something. But that is just mm. a, to me, a, a super interesting phenomenon. These people had some kind of status. They were sort of famous or whatever. And now that they feel like they have to kind of go through this publicly. Yeah, yeah. Or at least like a person of influence in an extremely niche totalizing community, right? Like a a person of standing in evangelicalism or adjacent to it. Um, You can kind of understand why maybe this is how uh, what I was saying earlier, deconstruction sometimes smuggles in those weird habits of evangelicalism through the back door. It's like, uh, you shouldn't actually have to justify how you feel yeah. <laughs> to like a whole community of strangers. But like, actually, that's what evangelicalism wants you to do so bad, right? To constantly like testify about your deepest, innermost uh, secrets, even if they're not really authentic, uh, whatever kind of feels, um, I don't know, affective to you in, in that moment. Uh, it's kind of incumbent on you to like broadcast that uh, in this weird way. Like it's a you, you kind of get conscripted into being vulnerable all the time if you're an evangelical, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess, like you said, man, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with John Steingard. Maybe he uh, maybe he doesn't feel that way. And I, I hope he doesn't because it's a terrible way to feel. But like it's a pattern that happens in evangelicalism. And I guess it, it makes sense to me to kind of watch uh, uh, emergent church or evangelical influencers, you might say, kind of um, 
you know, uh, processing all this stuff in public. Like he's, he's one among so many other examples of folks who've kind of been maybe just doing this, uh, in better or worse ways in the last, uh, five years, perhaps. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, um, you're right about the, the, you know, smuggling evangelicalism out of evangelicalism and sort of like reliving it. I mean, again, I don't want to say that that's what he's doing, but you could see the tendency for sure to be, to be publicly vulnerable, to have to feel like you're accountable to a group of people um, who like, you know, now you're saying don't have authority over your life anymore, but you need to like make it clear, which is very interesting. There's also kind of like this element of confession to it. Okay. Anyways, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to like psychoanalyze this dude because <laughs> it's like, whatever, <laughs> I don't know him at all. Um, but yeah, the, the element of celebrity to this whole thing seems important. Okay. Here's someone who I will judge a little more, more harshly. Um, <laughs> his name is Joshua Harris. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if, if you are uh, if you are a uh, a happy Roman Catholic who's never thought about evangelicalism a day in your life, Joshua Harris is someone who you don't know for sure. But um, I'm going to tell you about him. So if you were if you're a, uh, if you're a, a millennial ex evangelical, you know exactly who Joshua Harris is. He's a guy who wrote a book called "I Kiss Dating Goodbye." And um, let's see, Dean, did you ever read this book? Did you read it? Oh yeah, I never read it. Oh my god. I read it for sure. Uh, I read it for sure. It talks about a church camp, um, engaged with this in so many different ways. And here's the thing. Um, dating is bad. According to I've heard that. It's, I mean, okay, first of all, I, I have to agree. It's not great. I don't like, I don't like, uh, I mean, <laughs> going on a date is now is fine. Cause I'm like a married person and it's a whole different sort of dynamic, but you know, being 16 and going on a date is probably one of the worst experiences anyone's ever had. Um, or maybe that's just me. I don't know. I don't want to project myself out into other people. But anyways, um, dating is bad is is one of the things it, uh, you know, it puts you in all kinds of situations where you're where you're very likely to sin. You know, you're going to lust after somebody. You'll you'll have a pre you'll do premarital sex, whatever, all of these kinds of things. Uh, so Joshua Harris is like, OK, so if it's bad, if dating is even if, if it's bad, um, if, if it could cause you a sin, then you should probably just like not do it. OK. Um, how, how then you might ask yourself, <laughs> would you find a significant other in your life? And Joshua Harris <laughs> says, well, you would do it by developing a relationship called courtship <laughs> where it's like, this like very, um, puritanical <laughs> sort of like way to date somebody. You send a messenger pigeon to your <laughs> prospective suitor and, uh, hope for the best. That's right. You, uh, you, <laughs> you get your 10 10 best lads to send her uh, uh, a fantastic arrangement of birds and trees and all kinds of other things. Um, just like a very sort of distant relationship that you'd have with this person. And uh, in this, in this period of courtship, you're not supposed to kiss. And that's a big thing. <laughs> that's a big part of it too. Okay. So this is all, I mean, this whole book I'm laughing about it now because it's like so kind of absurd, but it had a pretty central role in, in the purity culture of like the, I guess, early two thousands. Um, and people tried to live that way. Um, if you can believe it. So anyways, <laughs> that's Joshua Harris. That's the book he wrote. He had another book too. And years later, he kind of came out and said, um, you know, I regret writing this book and every Christian teen that read it was like me too, my friend. Um, but, uh, you know, the damage had been done, I guess. Anyways, recently he announced that he was no longer a Christian and he was kind of on this path of deconstruction and kind of figuring out what all this kind of stuff means. And I mean, good for him. Um, on the other hand, 
I'm like mad at him. <laughs> he did a lot of damage to people, and I don't feel good about that. Um, anyways, this is a quote from Joshua Harris about uh, his situation. He says, by all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me there's a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I am not there now. So he's uh, he's he says that in this kind of like uh, you know this way that has some kind of opening opening to it where maybe he he could he could be a person of faith again or whatever, but right now he's not. Um, but in the wake of his announcement about his you know his the path of deconstruction about uh, not being a Christian, whatever all this might mean, he also this is like the very tasteless part of it all. Uh, he he launched an online course called the Deconstruction Starter Pack that cost two hundred and seventy five dollars. <laughs> to people to take so it's like an online class that you would take and an ebook and uh this uh this book in the class it provides a quote step-by-step process to reframe and reimagine your human journey Mm -hmm. um additionally on top of all that uh joshua harris announced that he'd also give the course away for free to people who are harmed by purity culture uh sort of in the the honor system the funniest part about this (laughs) okay it's it's funny and it's sad all at the same time but the funny part is that he's giving it away via like promotional code that he'll give you <laughs> um i kiss josh hello yeah yeah so that's that's part of the celebrity um i have more about joshua harris I'll, I'll let me read this one more quote and then and then i'll stop for your take dean uh joshua harris says this i was brought up in a christian faith when community and family built on faith can be beautiful but difficult if you're shifting and changing in your thinking. I want to be open to returning to the faith if possible, but it's important for me to know that I can step away and make that choice to step away. So that's kind of his, um, his feelings about deconstruction that he wants to, he wants to know that like, he doesn't have to be a Christian if he doesn't want to, that that totalizing force in his life, he could shun it if he chose. And that's a good feeling, but also, man, could you have not done this whole thing? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess to me, it's like, I hadn't heard of Josh, like I knew of that book and I knew of Joshua Harris back when it mattered and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I never read the book, but I think that was because I felt I also didn't need to because like <laughs> everybody around me had uh, kind of communicated what was going on in that book to me uh, directly and indirectly. Um, and I think that, you know, like once I left uh, evangelicalism, I probably never thought about that guy ever again, I guess. And I think my my big thought when I saw the deconstruction stuff going around is like, you know, who's asking for this? Like, who is like, where's this guy been and how can I get my hands on? I don't know that journey. And I think, you know, like you said, Matt, if he is sincerely kind of trying to work out you know, the way that his own brain is messed up by evangelicalism, like, good for him, we should all do that. And, uh, you know, I wish him the best (laughs) in that that effort. But um, I think it's also important to realize that, like, one other way that evangelicalism gets smuggled in, in lots of other ways, is by uh, uh, kind of praising, like, the figure of the kind of influencer character, or like, uh, I don't know, the oracle pastor grifter, the pastor entrepreneur who kind of... uh, can lead you in a training to, you know, live your best life now and so on. And it kind of felt to me like that's what Joshua Harris is doing, right? That like by using the language of deconstruction, he's kind of uh, slowly uh, just becoming the evangelical influencer he was before, but like with a better brand or a more appropriate brand now. And I don't know, it's like sometimes, you know, everybody should be able to be uh, reconciled to their community. Like I'm a prison abolitionist and so on for sure. (laughs) But at the same time, it's like, 
that doesn't necessarily mean that you then become a, a person of influence in that community again. And yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's just to me, it's bizarre to kind of say uh, to turn the process of deconstruction uh, that happens naturally into some kind of uh, money making scheme or something like that. Yeah, it's hard not to be extremely cynical about the whole thing and see it as, yeah. you know, one big and unfortunate capitalist grift. Um, mm hmm. But but I think you're exactly right. I mean, part of evangelicalism that I I think that doesn't get enough focus is is that particular role of yeah like pastor entrepreneur. I think that is like such an important piece of the puzzle. And I mean, people talk about it and they've written about it. But like I feel like sometimes you know you think of you, you can't think of evangelical churches just like any other church. It is like a speaking event, you know, <laughs> specifically for a particular person yeah. to like uh, create a platform for them. Um, okay, this is perhaps a tangent, but I think it's worth saying. Um, so in like getting into some of this like very interesting <laughs> and troubling evangelical exvangelical reaction, I did start listening to this podcast called The Rise and Fall of Marshall Church, which I think um mm -hmm. I'm late to the game on. I think that I missed <laughs> I missed the big wave when people were listening to it. Um, but it is a very interesting artifact that is um I think actually a really good uh, it's an artifact that you can't really explain to anybody without um, without the context of evangelicalism and exvangelicalism. So um, if you've never heard of this podcast, uh, I promise this does get back around to the point of evangelical uh, <laughs> entrepreneurship or something. But uh, it is a podcast about uh, just what like happened at the Mars Hill Church, the, the church that Mark Driscoll um, was the pastor of. Uh, we have a an episode, um, episode sixty nine about Mark Driscoll, uh, called "Biblical Porn" with Jessica Johnson that does rule. So go listen to that if you want to. It's a long time ago though. Anyway, so this this podcast is kind of doing this like serial, but about a church podcast, um, trying to get to the bottom of like what happened at Mar Marcel. Why is Mark Driscoll so bad? Like, what did he do? And it is really fascinating because it does shed a lot of light on this particular arrangement of of, of pastor as influencer. I think that's a, that's mm. really fascinating. Um, and I, I mean, like, not only is Mark Driscoll this kind of person, but this is just like, I think the role that many sort of like evangelical megachurch pastors find themselves in that, you know, church is like, you know, it's well, of course, they're going to say it's it's about a community and you got to go to your core group and whatever. <laughs> but really, it is about a dude having a speaking event one time a week um, and like, you know, kind of creating a, a whole culture around that one particular person. Um which is a, a, a really interesting development itself. The podcast is um, narrated and kind of hosted by this guy named Mike Cosper, who is um, he's a Christianity Today person. Um, and, uh, you know, a minute ago, I said it's a podcast that's hard to kind of talk about without the context of evangelicalism, exvangelicalism. And it is so fascinating because it is a podcast that is dealing with, I think, a lot of the themes that people who are, um, interested in exvangelical communities now or really really want to see people who are Christians deal with, right? Like um people who are kind of like leaving evangelicalism and kind of deconstructing their faith, you know, they want people they want they want to see evangelicals like really dealing with the problems that are inherent within their communities and their cultures, like the, you know, like misogyny, <laughs> like the mistreatment of women, um, like the inequality of women, the inequality of LGBTQ people, all these kinds of things. And, and this podcast does show you know it does demonstrate a little bit of like how evangelicals kind of are going to are grappling with the problems that latent in their churches right 
at the same time, it does a whole lot of apologetics for evangelicalism. Um, no matter like how awful the story is that they are about to tell, they tell about Mark Driscoll, like, you know, there, <laughs> there's this one episode about uh, complementarianism and about Mark Driscoll's particular view about women. And it's awful. It's like really vile. Uh, I think Mark Driscoll's whole culture within his church is completely awful. Um, but it's wild because like the host of the show will be like, you know, he'll he'll always editorialize at the end of the podcast and be like, well, you know, it's really bad. Mark Driscoll's kind of a kind of a scumbag. But, um, you know, you got to you got to know, though, that God does show up, you know, anywhere, despite who the pastor is. And it's like, <laughs> get real, dude. <laughs> you know, it's like anyways, the, the podcast is, is, I think, running a lot of interference for um, uh, for the particular sins of evangelicalism. Um, but uh, just the same, still widely popular among, I think, people uh, who are kind of doing this process of deconstruction because it's taking a look at something that, you know, has had a huge impact on their life. All that to say, um, Mark Driscoll is a really good example of the, the, um, the evangelical sort of like influencer as pastor and, uh, boy is it a, a bonkers construction. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, I think saying all this stuff on this podcast is like obviously casting sense from a pretty shiny glass house for sure. Um, yeah, of course. And like, yeah, like I, uh, I'll be the first to admit, like the reason I have a podcast, right? The reason I do a lot of things in my life is because I was an evangelical, and you kind of get you get these diseases that are just going to be there forever, like feeling, I don't know, some completely misguided uh, sense that you have something worth saying that other people might want to listen to, right? Like that is like an evangelical disease <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, that I, I hope I've uh, managed to at least like turn into something productive and not as toxic as it once was, but nevertheless, like, I think, uh, you know, we're all always kind of wrestling with the ways that evangelicalism has shaped us and, and in some ways for the better. Like, I think we've talked about this in the podcast before too, but like the reason that I, I'm a person who's very invested in whatever social justice and having a being able to have a very weird kind of fringe political ideology and all that kind of stuff that that is all also from evangelicalism uh, as much as I hate to admit it. But uh, I think it's just that process of deconstruction is so hard, too, because, um, you know, if you're not at least uh, trying to be. I don't know, uh, alive to those hazards, um, you're going to just sort of repeat them in uh, different forms. And I think that's the story of Christianity, too, in so many ways, like basically uh, having these kind of violences underneath that uh, keep bubbling up in different disguises over and over because they, you know, they just don't get named or they they get repackaged. And uh, man, evangelicalism is just extremely good at doing exactly that. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so I, I don't mean to exclude ourselves from this whole, <laughs> from the whole no, of course, uh, of course. influencer yeah. industrial complex. Uh, I suppose, though, there probably is some kind of difference between uh, <laughs> starting a church and telling people how to live their lives and then telling people about like yeah. communism <laughs> on a podcast or whatever. <laughs> but, uh, We're not Josh Harris. I feel comfortable <laughs> saying true. that. That's true. There are definitely okay. That's a great a good way to put it. There are degrees uh, to which we are bad, and that's not that not not the worst degree. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, dear listener, can decide exactly where on the chart of bad we belong. There's a <laughs> but keep it to yourself. There's a chart of like smiley faces to frowny face. You just point to which one we are. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And again, uh, point. Don't tell us where we are. Just uh, point it to for, your, to, for, for yourself, of course. Yeah, <laughs> this is an internal yeah, practice. Yeah. Well, okay, <laughs> um, but I think that's such a that's that's the interesting point, though. Is like how 
I, I think that again, I'm gonna I'll reiterate this. Like figuring out what you believe and like letting go of bad stuff and like figuring out how to let go of bad stuff is great. I think it's a great practice. The tough thing is just like, man, being sure that you're really doing it, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, how, like, um, how do you, uh, really know that you're like letting go of these things? I mean, that even saying, even uttering those words, how do you know you're really doing it is such an evangelical anxiety, um, (laughs) in itself, which I guess is fine. Um, but you know, it's like, uh, you can only do so much. You can only like self hew away so much of like who you are and like what you, what you've become. And, uh, to a certain extent, there's like some things that are going to be very difficult to kind of get rid of and kinds of thought patterns that mm-hmm. you um you know you might want to to rid yourself of it's hard it's hard to figure it out um part of the part of the conversation though that we should kind of turn to now that we're you know close to the end of the hour which we might even be no we have still time it's great is is uh there's <laughs> deconstruction but then some deconstruction folks in the evangelical sphere talk about the idea of reconstruction as well and i think that's really fascinating is, um, you know, like you've taken apart whatever these beliefs are, you know, you're thinking a lot really hard about them. And maybe there's some that you, you can't get to and you, you maybe never will. And you'll have to deal with that. Um, the other part that I think is really interesting is is the the opposite. You know, you put yourself back together <laughs> or or maybe you don't uh, or you try not to, at least. Um, uh, I was listening to an episode of Dirty Rotten Church Kids, I think is what it's called. I, a podcast I um, am actually growing pretty fond of. <laughs> Um, but they were, uh, there's an episode that they had from kind of a while back where they're talking about deconstruction and reconstruction. And as they put it, you know, you, you don't have to reconstruct if you don't want to, you could just like not. And by that, I think they meant like, if you kind of do this work of deconstruction and you just end up like jettisoning a lot of these uh, like Christian ideas, like it's okay. You don't have to like pick them back up or like, you know, you don't have to like leave mm. evangelicalism and become like an Episcopalian or something. Like I think, I think it's kind of like mm-hmm. what they're saying. Um, but I was thinking a little bit about that, about like how you do like, I, I mean, if you're not, it, you know, you, you, you do all this work to be very intentional about like taking these ideas apart, but if you're not just as intentional as putting them back together, I think that ends up causing some other interesting problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Well, it's also uh, here's another great tip from Jack Derrida, everyone's favorite real deconstructionist. Um, he uh, not that not that the other deconstructionists are fake ones, just he's the you know, he made a whole life thinking really hard about it. Um, he uh, has a really interesting observation about deconstruction where he says basically the gist is like anytime you're deconstructing something, you're all, you're also reconstructing it even if you don't really know that's what you're doing or even if it's not intentional. So in a weird way, both of these things can be subconscious. Like I mentioned earlier, uh, deconstruction is something that happens to you. Um, Reconstruction is that way too. And I think what Derrida is getting at is so fascinating because it's like, uh, yeah, you can take everything apart, right? Take your whole faith apart or whatever. But when you're doing that, you're going to be doing that with like tools that you got from somewhere or uh, you're going to be sort of taking them apart. And in, in that process, you'll be sort of, you know, contributing to a new version of yourself. And Derrida's whole advice, I think, is always to sort of be like as aware or like as mindful of these kinds of things as you can be um, to kind of stay vigilant about them. Uh, not in like an evangelical way where you're constantly on guard or whatever, but uh, more in a way that's like, you know, not naive, I guess, about thinking that you can kind of just take everything apart and then sort of um, 
always be uh, in the negative or something. And I think for me, for a long time, I felt like that's what I wanted to do, like just kind of keep saying no to everything because I had so much anxiety about sort of rebuilding a big totalizing force to take over the other one. But I think over time, uh, the best thing that ever happened to me specifically, this is not advice, (laughs) just confession. The best thing that happened to me was going back to the Catholic Church because uh, the Catholic Church is so bizarre and like plural and weird that it's like, well, this could never be a totalizing thing in the way that evangelicalism was. And I can just kind of be a Catholic and sort of forget about it, (laughs) you know, like uh, just sort of adopt that as a part of myself and uh construct that identity on purpose without it being a a totalizing one. So I think just that sort of attention to the fact that you're always going to be reconstructing and you can do that on purpose in better or worse ways is uh, uh, a good gift, at least that I got from Derrida thinking through uh, what it means to kind of take apart very formative pieces of your life. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. Since we're we're throwing around French philosophers, I'm going to do it too. some some people <laughs> that I mentioned last week, uh, Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari, they have this um, this particular way of talking about this exact problem in a book they wrote called Anti Oedipus. Um, and when they talk about it, man, who knows what they're talking about? They're French; it's impossible to know. But they have this particular way of thinking about the organization of um, desires, I guess, and how they kind of produce uh, different desires. <laughs> desires producing desires man that's what it's all about <laughs> anyways so they have this this way of talking about it um called deterritorialization it's like where you um are, th- are finding these things in your life and you're kind of you know you're you're stripping them away you're um you know all of the the hang-ups that you have all of like the weird little like niches in your body of like weird belief that you have you're smoothing them all out right you're getting rid of them you're deconstructing it's uh, in, in this way of thinking but there's also um, they also say that you can't deterritorialize without also re-territorializing at the same time. That like, yeah, just like what you're saying, you you can't um, you can't take it all apart and and not also like put something in its place. I, I mean, it's like um, it's it's sort of this like weird philosophical um, problem of transformation of becoming of becoming something different. Is that like, mm-hmm. you know, you can you can be one thing. A Christian say, and you can become an atheist, but you have to like have a way from getting from point A to point B. And the way that you do that might really matter, right? I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've known a few Christians in my life who've become like very turned on by like new atheism, and you know they're swapping out one type of totalizing desire for another one that I think is probably just as problematic and and bad as as the, as the last. So it does like really matter what we're using to think through these things you know it it just it strikes me as like the i'm thinking here of, of mark driscoll again particularly <laughs> but in the marzo podcast there's this this point where they're talking about um i don't know some kind of like transformation of faith in mark driscoll's life where he goes from being just like a regular evangelical kind of guy to being this like hyper masculine one um and, and uh the interesting thing is that he's like you know he he wants to eschew all cultural value um, and and um, and only adhere to like really conservative and sort of like masculine values. And it's just like this such an interesting thing that's like this transformation for him. It was like, I want to eschew cultural values, but actually he just like ends up kind of like accepting 
a bunch of them that are really normative, like having a heterosexual mm-hmm. marriage and like, you know, being like masculine in this one particular way. And it's such a, it seems like such a like silly and naive thing to do that you're like looking for this true faith, this true type of Christianity and this true social ethic. But like you go through it all and really what you have at the end is something that's like just reactionary. And I, I mean, mm-hmm. um, in, in the case of Mark Driscoll, it's like annoying and problematic and toxic and also incredibly violent for all the people that were in his church. But for people deconstructing, it's like uh, it's something to be very mindful of because you don't want to just recreate the problems that you already have or recreate the the thoughts you already have or like just as just as bad. Like, I don't know, pick up a bunch of beliefs that end up, I, I don't know, just <laughs> not are nothing right. Like deconstructing from an, being an evangelical Christian and then just becoming like a, a great moderate Democrat would be such a weird move. Right. Like mm-hmm. you have this like transformative moment in your life and then like what do you do with it is just like you you become like i don't know a joe manchin fan or whatever (laughs) well this is the thing though i mean um you the thing that bothers me the most about some ways that deconstruction gets memefied is it really cheapens the process in a way that is like okay you'll deconstruct everything about you know your christianity or spirituality but where you end where you land is uh, this set of um, other kinds of violent ways of being in the world that you sort of take as an achievement. And in a relative sense, they probably are an achievement, right? Like, um, like, I don't know if you, if you grew up in a household that was a diehard, like George W. Bush evangelical household. And now you, I don't know, like really liked, Pete Buttigieg or something like that. That's a, you know, th- sure. There's a lot of like important relative distance between those two points. Um, but if you stay as like a Pete Buttigieg person uh, and you kind of refuse to deconstruct, and I think a lot of people do do that, like um, they kind of land in that moderate space and then they refuse uh, to ask more critical questions about that. I think that sort of choice to stay there is, um, you know, it, uh, it, it, is not worth the it's not worth all the the trauma of like extricating yourself out of it if you're just going to end up kind of living another uh violently patterned life in that particular way i mean we're all you know none of us are free from violence but like um if you kind of land in that naivete and then double down on it like i won't mention these people who they are i guess on twitter or whatever but i don't know we've tweeted about them before or something like there are sort of Christian influencers out there, right? For whom deconstruction is a way of like avoiding things like politics or saying uh, I'm neither left nor right. Right. Uh, I've deconstructed these binaries. I don't really believe that they're meaningful categories for me or, uh, you know, I'm not a Christian in this particular way, but I am in another one. Uh, but that ends up making people kind of like supersessionist or colonialist or whatever it might be. It's like, uh, if you use deconstruction as a way to actually avoid asking those really hard questions, I think for me, that's where I'm like, Oh, like I really don't want to be associated with that (laughs) at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. This is probably the thing that we are the worst at talking about. Honestly, like if this was a history about like, um, I don't know, uh, Christian communists in some country would be all, all about it. But like talking about someone else's spiritual transformation or like, how do you, how do you change your life and like, yeah. live a different way? is like a very tough thing to figure out. I mean, for anybody, but I think that, I think that you're onto something that like, if the transformation is really transformative, you want to like, I don't know, keep questioning things until you get somewhere even deeper, you know, um, that, that does actually deal with, um, you know, not just, not just binaries, uh, in this like sort of cheap deconstruction, but really attends to uh, 
I don't know, material reality and the politics of it all. It's important. And uh, yeah, it, it mm-hmm. is a bummer if people's kind of like stop too soon. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, I don't know, I think um, if uh, if you're going to make deconstruction your brand, this is how I put it. If you're going to make it into your brand, I, that's fine. Probably there's room for a few people to to have that be their brand and they can probably be genuinely useful in the world and so on and so forth. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm willing to imagine that in my brain. Uh, but if that brand, um, doesn't then kind of deconstruct things like capitalism and liberalism and colonialism and all these other kinds of things, uh, that brand of being a deconstructionist is, you know, basically not that different from being a pastor preneur <laughs> or whatever it might be. And I think that is, uh, so just something to be sort of vigilant about. It's true. Um, if you're not a socialist the end of the day. We're not gonna. We're not gonna say that you're good on this podcast. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, you know. Well, I don't know if anyone's ever told you this, Matt, but I've had uh, people who have said, "Well, of course you're, you know, a radical socialist or communist or whatever, because you were an evangelical, so you've always been a bit of a zealot and, yes. and so on." And like, probably yeah. that's true. Like, I, it's not wrong, but at the same time, it's like you know, those things are not necessarily the bad things about evangelicals yeah. per se, at like a structural level. Right. Uh, so it's also important to kind of just think through our allergies and what we're allergic to in that past. And what, what, what kind of discipline that was imposed on us through evangelicalism or other forms of Christianity, uh, can be repurposed or re-territorialized or something into some other kind of machine for liberation or, or I whatever. I didn't quite expect um, to get here in this yeah. at the end of this episode, but we've we're very much at the we've arrived at the Lacanian enjoy your symptom kind of moment. Like <laughs> listen, yeah, evangelicalism did some very weird things to the way you think. And I guess now you gotta make the best of it. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you can never be rid of it. So all you can do is uh, find well, a way to like it. That that's a agreement. there might be there might be something to that though, right? The the zealotry of evangelicalism. If you can transform that into uh, the zealotry for justice or something, I don't know, man. You could do worse. Enjoy yeah, that yeah. symptom. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Well, there you have it. I don't know. Deconstruct your faith. Don't don't deconstruct your, your faith. Let it happen to you. I don't know. Uh, I have no no good advice at the end, but I will say um, whatever you do, you better not That's like it. Capitalism. That's the one thing. That's my one piece of advice. <laughs> How could you? How could you? It's so bad. Seems It's a bad totalizing thing, and uh, evangelicalism loves it. So if you really want to get rid of your evangelicalism, you're going to have to become an anti-capitalist. That's what I'll say. That's my hot take at the so end. So deconstruct that binary, you ding-dong. All right. If you like what you heard, and this one, maybe you didn't. Maybe this one was too much. It could have been. But if you did, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can build our grift. Uh, our pastorpreneur podcast. Um, okay. If you do support us there, you do get um, you do get the... No, I, I feel like too bad about the grift now. I don't even want to say it. But you should support us on Patreon. But I'm not going to tell you what's over there on the other side of that wall. You have to go look and see yourself. Uh, cool. Our intro music is by Amari Armstrong. And our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come.
on earth and there won't be no church we'll meet down by the riverside there we'll swim with all creation never get tired never bored don't worry someday there'll be no dam between us and our lord jackson keep your hoods up keep your hoods up and you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.